The Words in Winter podcast is brought to you by Words in Winter, an annual literary and arts festival held in August each year in the Hepburn Shire and surrounding districts. You can find out more by going to wordsinwinter.com. Thank you. It's really nice to be in Darsford again and um, nice to be here talking about something I can't really get wrong. It's always nice. <laughs> it's because I wrote these, so I can everything I say is going to be right in some way. Um, um, I wanted to check that because I wanted about short stories particularly because if there's anyone in the in the room who's actually a high school student in sort of year ten and above at the moment, probably you're going to get to have to study these um, because I've had my other collection. Hi, hello. Dark Roots on the literature syllabus for about three years, and I've had to talk to schools about those stories, but. This one is on the English syllabus, which means there's tons more kids. So you kids, are you in year 12? Uh, year 11. Do you, have, do you have to do this? Are you studying this book? Oh, is it? Okay. So you, you may well. So what I thought I would do is talk in a general way about short story um, for the adults here, but also if anyone is heading into the kind of down the tunnel of VCE, uh, I want to give you the sort of insider scoop so that when you go to do your creative response, this will make a bit more sense to you. Okay, because you do a critical response, I think, or a creative response. So one's a persuasive piece of writing, or one could be trying to write a story. And sometimes people say, oh, why don't you write from the point of view of a secondary character in one of the stories, or why don't you start your story at the, the finish of one of the stories and, or find a gap in the collection where you think... And that's always... That's great, because lots of kids send me their stories or a school will put their stories together and I'll get to kind of see how the stories in this book have been used as kind of scaffolding for somebody else to write a story. And I thought, that just feels fantastic, I've got to tell you. People say, don't you worry about plagiarism or people copying your idea? Never. Never. Because once the story's done and written, it's kind of out of my head and then it has its effect on somebody else, which is what you want to do with anything that you make, I think, whether it's a piece of music or a painting or a story, a song maybe. It's not finished until you've kind of created an emotional experience in somebody else, in a reader or an audience or someone. Otherwise, it just feels like it's just marks on a page until somebody reads it. And this kind of reader-writer experience, this sort of relationship really interests me because when you start writing fiction, especially short fiction, because with short stories, you only have a few pages to win someone's heart. You have to make that world seem really real in a very short amount of time, maybe 3,000 words. I think you guys get 2,000 words, which is even harder. It's like you're saying, I want you to look inside this door for a second. Come here, you get, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to open this door, have a glance in there, and that's enough. And somehow you have to kind of get a glimpse of that whole world in that room or through that door just by what the author has kind of put together in that 10 pages. It's a really interesting form to try because you've got no, there's nowhere to hide. You can't really mess around. You have to try and find something that has given you a jolt in your life or your memory and then somehow try and give someone else a jolt. And you can feel yourself as you're writing, thinking if I put this here and then I show down here that loses his temper, that person who's reading it is going to be thinking, oh, my God, he's going to lose. It's that narrative kind of relationship that's associative with the reader and writer. That's what you're writing for. A lot of kids that I talk to, I say, what do you write for if they write poems or stories? They say, well, I write to express my emotions. I'm writing to explore my emotions. And I think that's fantastic. 
That is that's a journal, isn't it, or a diary, or even a blog. <laughs> but something happens when you pick up that first draft again, and you think, how am I going to make this better? How am I going to give someone else the jolt that something has given me? You stop thinking about your emotions, and you start thinking about what you can do for someone else's emotions, and it's a whole other part of your brain that you're working on. So this has interested me so much that writing short stories has led me to kind of become a teacher in narrative and short story. I now have a job working um, in Portland, Oregon. I go over to a low residency master's program in Oregon and I work on the fiction faculty of their master's in creative writing program, uh, working with only a few students every semester. I'm doing my own PhD now at La Trobe in narrative and empathy and how this works because it really interests me a lot how I'm giving someone else a really specific and particular emotional experience and I'm manipulating it. That's the kind of pleasure of it. Not being manipulative for its own sake, but to think this thing that happened to me that won't let me go, this little thing that keeps me awake or I can't stop thinking about, it's all okay because I'm going to make something out of it. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to use it to kind of soothe myself and then somewhere down the track, hopefully, somebody else will also read it and that stuff that Arnold was talking about last night at the opening event where he said, then it goes out in the world, it's like a mirror. It's like a mirror. Someone else sees themselves in, in, in your little strange particular thing that you made primarily for yourself but also hopefully for somebody else, it become, the small little personal thing that's really specific and particular becomes kind of universalised. People say, that's just like my parents' marriage or I read that and it's like you were talking to me. How do you know how it feels to be a, a middle-aged gay man taking his dad's ashes to the river? So I don't know, I just had to kind of immerse myself in that and imagine and somehow render it because you're making something out of it. And that's when you stop thinking about your emotions and you start thinking, well, what am I going to do with that? To A, kind of have the right to bring that character to life as a kind of avatar for those emotions. And how can I make a reader see that character as their avatar so that character is operating for them? Because that's what happens, isn't it? You're watching a character and it's a really basic kind of um, uh, basis of connection and engagement, whether it's something on Netflix or something in a story or anything, even someone in real life sometimes, you think, what are they going to do next? And then your next thought is, what would I do if that was me? That's it. We're watching to see what somebody does. Not so what they'd say or even what they're thinking. We're watching to see what they do in terms of action. That's what the word protagonist means, the person who acts, the first actor. Um, so I think we're, I'm really interested in seeing what a story is going to do that because a short story is something which you know, someone has a problem and they go out and do something about it. Whether they're, what they're doing is avoiding the problem or whether what they're doing is trying to solve the problem, they want something and they can't get it, right? And they go out and try and get it. If they don't want it enough, there is no story. I mean, if, you know, if the door, the knock happened and, you know, that's always what we call an inciting incident, you, you know, knock on the door, the door opens, Cinderella, guess what? The prince is having a ball. Here are the invitations to the ball. Uh, you, every, every woman in the kingdom's invited and he's going to choose his bride from whoever's there. That, that is a, it's like a catalyst to action. Because if she says, oh, you guys can go, I don't really feel like going, <laughs> there is no story, right? She has to want something and go out and try and get it. And then we watch the story. What's she going to do next? Because she hasn't got a coach. She hasn't got a dress. She lacks a certain cultural confidence, doesn't she? 
There's stuff that is stopping her getting what she wants and we are going to watch avidly to watch what she does. And that template is the basis of kind of all story. There's a If you go to the Pixar website, they've got a thing they call Universal Story Spine. And even in short story, it's still applicable, even though it's more like kind of the Harry Potter giant plot thing. And the story spine is something like, once upon a time, dot, 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 and every day, dot, 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 until one day, dot, 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 and then, and because of that then, and till finally, and nothing was ever quite the same. <laughs> That's it. So we could do that with, once upon a time, a little boy lived in his auntie and uncle's um, broom cupboard under the stairs. And every day they treated him like, until one day, a knock came at the door. Or an owl arrived or whatever it was, you know. We could do that with, you know, once upon a time, there was a young man, a carpenter living in Nazareth. And every day he helped his father until one day he decided he, all that stuff is exactly what happens in every single story. And it's a very ancient thing. It's very old. We've been doing that, telling those stories for like 65,000 years. We've been sitting here like this, silently, silent reading, it's a thing, probably 150 years. And it's already kind of picked and troughed, right? People are leaving the page and they're back to the beautiful audiovisual world, which is the small streaming screen, but also audiobooks and watching drama because we are audiovisual animals. We want to watch what someone does next, especially if they consider themselves unobserved. And then we have access to the inner life because we're watching them go through someone's bag and get their phone out and check their messages. We're thinking, oh, jealous. That kind of feeling is what the engagement is that's happening to your reader. So somehow on the page in a story, that's what you're trying to create. And it can be a very, very small thing. In fact, it probably is better to be a small thing in a short story because you have this beautiful, beautiful brevity and compression and constraint. I can't tell you as a creative person <clears throat> how much I love constraint. And it's so weird because the myth is, the cliche is, that creative people just hate constraint. We love to be free. We love to dance in the meadows and have no boundaries and no limitations. Just, it's, it's impossible to make anything, isn't it? If I said to you guys, write me a story about whatever you like. It can be as long as you want. You can ham it in whenever it's ready. It can be, you know, you would not write anything because your brain just goes, no, I can't. But if I said, write exactly two pages, or better still, make one small thing. Go home tonight, take one photo to break my heart, use a filter you like, come back in the morning, and I'm going to look at them. You could do that. You could do one thing because I'm giving you a kind of parameter, a frame, to say, just do this. Just write 1,500 words and make the first line this. Or don't use the letter E. Or um, <laughs> It's true. That's one of the things that John Marsden does. <laughs> I have to say one time, he said, try this with kids. Here's a radical exercise. It was for little kids. He said, try this. Make them describe the planet Earth without using the letter E. That, yeah, that might be right. Or was it that? It was another letter. Anyway, I forget. But I said, okay, try this to the kids. You can't use the letter E. How can you describe Earth without E? It's going to be very hard. Or maybe it was A. Anyway. Yes, it was A. Don't use letter A. And one kid, I described the planet without using letter A. And one kid wrote, the biggest shithole in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give that person an A+. Plus. <laughs> one time I said, <laughs> see if you can write... See if you can write your own kind of uh, description of yourself, your life story, but you can only use 50 words. Just very hard because you start, I was born in Ballarat and you're already kind of out of 15 words, so it makes you think very differently. So 50 words and then down to 25 words and then 
bit by bit right down to almost like a haiku. And people begin to write their life story in a very interesting way when you do that. And one, right down to five words. That so was like the five-word thing that you would have on your, on your gravestone, I guess, the five-word obituary or the five-word life story. And one kid wrote in their five-word life story, um, I'm normal, just ask my toaster. <laughs> See, people, that's the thing. Creativity does this fantastic thing within the kind of boundaries of restraint because we can, because it's like a game now to our kind of subconscious rather than a terrifying, frozen, paralysed puzzle. So I love short stories because the little thing that happens, that whole cliche question, where do you get your ideas from? Well, my life. There's no other place to get them from. It's not like ideas.com or a shop. You need to get them from your experiences and the ones that make the best stories to me are the ones that, you, that will not let you go. The little memories and images and moments that you can't stop thinking about, that you're lying awake at 2.30 thinking about a conversation that you've had or something you've heard about someone else's life or a moment, sometimes just a glancing moment, they make fantastic uh, things that you can develop into a short story because something happens in them. That's like, it's like, you're, like a kind of like a, I don't know how I can describe it, it's like you're picking a lock. That's what it feels like. There's these tumblers in the lock and you're kind of very gently trying to see how you can make the tumblers fall into place to to kind of click that door open somehow. And then you think, oh, this is what the story's about. Okay. So you kind of, it's not like a strategy. It's more like a kind of a glimmer, a kind of an idea that you have. And you have an idea like, so, you know, the stuff that won't let you go to sleep, you know, it, it could be a memory. I was a cleaner in a hospital when I was 18 and I um, got sacked because one of the patients um, who was dying asked me, he was an old, he was an old war veteran, he asked me if I would go and get him a packet of cigarettes, and I did. And I took him out into the courtyard and, uh, yeah, and gave him the cigarette, and I got sacked by the matron. And so I wrote a story about that because it's a little thing that happened where I was a little bit brave for a minute, and I wished I did something else, which was give him a bath. I could have done that because I was the cleaner of the old wing of the baths. It was being converted into a private hospital from public hospital, and there were these big, deep baths. And he said, that's what I'd love for my, when my daughter and my grandkids come to visit on Wednesday. They'll come for me to stay because he was on his last legs. That's the only reason they're coming to visit, actually. And I wish I had taken him. And in the story, I let myself do it. I give the character the chance to do it. And I made that bit up because it lets me stop worrying about my lack of courage, if you know what I mean. So you can make yourself into more of an avatar if it's your story. Or you can give someone the credit that perhaps they're not going to get in real life. Those people are quite heroic to me, the people who just cope and never get any recognition and don't expect to. They just get up and under the dishwasher and make the lunches and keep going. Those people I find more and more have become my kind of heroes. So I tend to write about these very ordinary people, people going back to work after they had a baby, um, um, a, a man who cares for his wife who's got an acquired brain injury, um, someone having his parents over for Christmas lunch when his wife can't fall pregnant, a woman who's about to go into the city. She lives in the country, place very much like here, um, and she's going into the city hospital to have a, um, a biopsy on what she thinks is probably breast cancer. And she sits up all night finishing her son's uh, school project for him so it's there for him in the morning when he wakes up. So just little things like that. They're small things, but I notice when I start to write them, I can make them into something which feels a more kind of universal thing. And then you start seeing that there's a moment in a short story 
It's like a pivot point, very much like a pivot, actually. You know what? I don't know if you... When I was at school, we went to a Catholic school and the nuns taught us. And Sister Helena was our sewing teacher. And we had to learn to pivot on the sewing machines where you put the fabric, the needle in the fabric, lift up the foot and turn the fabric around and put the foot back down. I was terrified of her because the sewing machines for some reason were like, you know, cost so much money. And I used to let the foot used to sometimes slip and it would snack down. She goes, was that a foot I heard? Like she was German. And I was like, oh, fuck, it was me, sorry. I didn't know. But that idea of you've got this material and the needle's holding everything in place and you can turn it around, I've never forgotten. That's what happens in a story. So we have this sort of thing that happens. We think it's like a crisis, but in a short story, it's hard to write a big crisis because you've only got a couple of thousand words. It's hard to write about a meteorite about to hit Earth or people stuck on a submarine under the Russian ice or 20 people in Antarctica when they're radio. That's a massive ambitious plot and it doesn't tend to lend itself too well to a short story because you can't develop it and have a kind of a pinnacle thing and close it down again in 2,000 words. You need to get right to the point in a short story in the way that those fairy tales used to. If you think about that idea of who wants what and why can't they get it, read the stuff that's had generations of oral tradition before they got written down because they're the ones that have to get people's attention straight away around the fire, right? There was once a miller's daughter who wished to go and seek her fortune. Hmm. Okay, let's go. We're on the road trip now. Out we go. We're not going to hear too much more. We're just going to start with the desire because they want something. They go out and try and get it. So you have to get this kind of little crisis. And the crisis can be that they just can't get what they want or they reach a kind of a breaking point or they reach a turning point. That's how I would see a kind of that climactic point in a story now where you turn the material around. The material is the stuff of the story. Where you've got something happening and then it doesn't go the way the reader expects or something is revealed to the character that shows them something different. And there's a shift in perception. There's a shift. Sometimes the shift is all the change that you need because a story is always going to be about change. Always. Because if my story starts and I have a shy, quiet housemaid called Cinderella who can't stand up for herself, and my story finishes and she's still a shy, quiet housemaid who can't stand <laughs> you feel ripped off, right? Try anything. It, Ask yourself why you feel annoyed watching something on TV that makes you feel ripped off. That's going to be the reason. There is not a change that's embodied in the character. That's where the action is, inside the character. It's not about the meteorite. It's about the person who's done something about it. It has to be something happening to a character. So Cinderella has to go out and try and get the prince and then, you know, the real climax of that story is where the sisters lock her in the room and she gets herself out to try that slipper on. Because that's agency. That's a protagonist acting, not being a victim anymore. That's the high point. So we want, we want Harry. We know Harry's going to have to fight Voldemort. It's only him that can do it. It's no one else can do it. It's like Lord of the Rings, you know. Why doesn't Gandalf go and get the ring? He's got much more powers than Frodo. Why has it got to be Frodo? Because Frodo is the guy who doesn't want the job, right? So that idea of finding that character, it really makes you look at it in a very condensed way in a short story. So something going to happen and then there's a twist or a turn and the character comes out a little bit different because remember that story spine, the last bit said, and from then on nothing else was quite the same? That can be something that's internal in a short story, that we start as one thing and you come out the other end, you're a little bit different. 
And if you do it really well, sometimes you manage to pull it off so that your reader goes in one way and comes out at the end a little bit different. It's changed you in some way. And that feels like a very powerful thing to kind of try. That your small thing suddenly feels like it's got all this kind of potency and you know you've got the right material there. It's like a hot coal, you know, that you're carrying because you know what else is carrying a hot coal as well. And we've got to find what that thing is. It's in the writing biz, they call that the psychic wound is what they call it. What's the psychic wound for the character? That's what a, a kind of dramaturg will say if they're, you know, sitting at Netflix make up a new script. What's a psychic wound for the detective? Because it's something that's lacking in him that makes him want to go and find the murderer and find justice. That stuff is what unravels the kind of plot. So something's going to turn that's going to bring that conflict to the surface somehow. And often the conflict is not the meteorite or World War II or whatever. And this is what happens at school. And it took me ages to work out why this was a problem. Because when you're at school, we would say, I don't know what to write my thing about, my story about. And the teacher would say, do you want me to give you a theme? And we'd say, yes, please, because it's much easier to be fed something rather than have to come up with the thing that won't let you alone, that feels small in your life, doesn't feel worth writing about, your little thing about when you're just falling off your bike or whatever. That seems boring compared to the popular culture that you're absorbing about espionage and you know forensic science and legal stuff in California. So we, we believe that our own little lives are just too dull. So we asked the teacher for a theme, please. And teachers would say, okay, so write about, um, uh, you know, divorce or peer group pressure or war. War. Write about war. That's a good thing. So we'd write war on top of the page, you know. And then you'd start writing this crap. War is a terrible thing that affects many innocent people. There are much, there's lots of collateral damage in war. If only people who started wars would think more carefully about innocent lives before they began it and we could resolve human. You just think, what am I doing? It sounds like nothing. It's just nothing that... And all of your own actual particular specific emotions that you feel about something, you just push them away to try and get the right answer according to some assessment task. It's a disaster to do that. And also it's like, it's like looking at a gigantic wall that you can't get a handhold on and neither will your reader be able to because it is something huge and vague and generic rather than something small and specific that I can really make you feel something with. I can do it right now, actually. I'm going to write about one soldier in one battle of one war. In fact, let's make it one day of one battle. Let's just get that camera that's way out here and let's zoom it in because I want you to pay attention to something little. Let's make it one minute of one battle. So what minute? I'm going to choose the minute where um, all the soldiers have got their rifles disassembled and they're cleaning them in the trench. And there's a siren and the sergeant says, boys, boys, they're coming over the top. They're coming for us. Put your guns back together. They're coming. And my guy, my character, looks up over the top of the parapet and he can see the other soldiers running towards them with screaming with their bayonets fixed and his hands are shaking too much to put his rifle back together. That's going to be my minute. I can tell I've got your attention now. And I wonder why. If you want to ask yourself as a writer, why is that more effective than war is a terrible thing? Here's some statistics of casualties in wars of the 20th century. Why is the small and specific going to do more than the large and generic? What am I asking you to pay attention to? 
That's, there isn't any secret about it. That's what I'm doing. I'm saying, look at this. I'm going to make you look at this. I'm going to bring in sensory detail that's going to make you see a little movie in your own mind rather than look at a pie diagram about casualties. Yeah? And it's this boy who can't, his hands are shaking too hard because I bet mine would be too, actually. And I've also given myself fantastic constraint and limitation because even just saying that, I know it's got to be World War I now, right? Because no one's fights in rifles and bayonets anymore. There's no trench warfare in this century. So it's got to be World War I. So I don't need any other details really except maybe to Google what kind of rifles they had because I'm going to make my guy, when this boy, who's also 18, jumps over the trench, the enemy boy, and their eyes lock for a second, I'm going to make my character pick up his rifle with the, with the, what do you call it, the wooden bit, the, the, the butt of the rifle, hold it up like that and say, come on then, come on, let's go, like a club. And thinking about that, if I went away and left that as a draft, which is pretty much done now, I go and a cup of tea and come back in two weeks' time and look at it again, something amazing happens where I notice something that I've accidentally revealed to myself that is already there. I don't need to do anything clever, actually, because my own subconscious has shown me something that I, now that I know how to do this, I've realised what I can use. And actually, it's made me find an important thing, which is subtext in story. And my subtext is, I wonder if you can see what it is, I think that war is a terrible thing that affects innocent people and it actually turns us into kind of Neanderthals. It's our worst self. Warfare brings out our kind of primate self. So if I make my soldier pick up his gun like a club, I'm just going to put that there in the story as an image and just leave it with you. That's, I'm not going to say, on that day he learned a valuable lesson. Hey, Jack, he said, it's like we're cavemen. You know, I'm not going to write that kind of, because I know that I would hate that as a reader. But I'm going to leave that image there for you. Not preach to you, but put it there, because I've turned my material around and taken you in this direction. And I can look at my draft then and find where the climax to the story is. Probably the eyes locking, I would say is the bit where they both realise they're terrified. That's a change moment. That's a moment of epiphany or whatever it is we want to look at in our story shape. That's where it's going to be. So I'll work on that and I'll rise up to that and I'll fall away from that. And then the story has its own kind of shape. So that happens a lot when I'm looking at my drafts. I don't know what I'm doing in my first draft. I just know that I want to stop worrying about the character. <laughs> I want to find something to happen to them. Uh, so... For example, um, uh, well, I'll give you a couple of examples, actually. The first story in the collection is called Flexion. I think that's one that you'll have to look at uh, in VCE. It's about a, um, it's a wife's point of view. She's a farmer's wife, and her, her husband has had an accident in the tractor, and the tractor's fallen on him, and it's broken his back. And uh, she's really hoping he dies, because he is a nasty piece of work. He's a bully. He's cold. He's abused her for years. Uh, and he's in hospital, and they're all saying it's not looking good, you know, looks like pneumonia, and he gets over it, and he gets better, and now she's going to have to nurse him now at home. That's what's going to happen. And uh, so I did meet a farmer who'd broken his back, nothing like this character. He was the loveliest man I've ever met in my life. He was, we were at a sausage sizzle, and I was saying, how come, Kurt, you're a teacher and your wife, Kerry, runs the farm? How, do you, how come you swap roles? And he said, oh, because I had this tractor accident, I broke my back. 
And I survived because I've got something with my spinal column that meant I didn't die. So I told me that story. And then he said, um, I said, that must have been pretty awful. And he said, yeah, I was, um, I actually heard my back break. And I was just standing holding my sausage just going, oh, God, really? Let's go there. I said, how was that? And he said, well, I was lying there and um, uh, Kerry came running out and I was kind of coming in out of consciousness and I knew that the first, uh, the first, I don't know, 16, 20 minutes after you have that kind of injury, uh, if, you, if you're going to die, you're going to die then. Something happens to the oxygen. I don't know. He told me this. So I knew that I, I was trying to stay conscious and she came running out and uh, she said, I'm going to run and call the ambulance. And so she ran back and he said, well, now I've got four minutes, so now would be a good time to die if I'm going to be dying. I'm going to give that to her. And I thought that's about the bravest thing I've ever heard in my life. He didn't die. But I thought, what if I gave that line to my horrible man? What if I made a character that had no empathy for anybody and was really selfish and never gave her a thing and at his low point that's what he tells her? Because I'm going to mess with your emotions about how we, how we judge and how we look at things simplistically and we make presuppositions and then our sub- – that happens to me in life all the time, right? You make a judgment about something, you pigeonhole someone and then you find out something else about them and you feel chastened that you have actually made a, a you know a judgment that's been that hasn't looked at the complexity of what's happening internally for other people so i always find myself looking for those characters because it's it's tough you know people are complex situations are complex one of the stories in here is called 5 dollar family it's based on a you know a young woman who's having a baby and uh She's desperate to have the, uh, the photo, you know, the photo of the mother and the father and the little newborn baby. She wants to get that taken because her husband is about to go to court and because it's, he's got prior offences, he's going to go to jail after he does the court appearance. So it's her only chance in this three days to get the photos taken. So she has to walk across in the hospital over to, Safe, over to Coles where they've got the guy set up with the, you know, the little um, photo lab thing. And I actually, I, I, when I was having my baby, she was in the next room. And I could hear the nurses at midnight talking about that poor girl whose boyfriend's about to do time and she's got to go home alone with the new baby without him. So how can we organise a car seat for her because no one's going to come pick her up. I was thinking, oh, my God, that poor girl. How would that be to have that kind of – that's a dilemma. It just seems small, but it's actually extraordinarily crucial and important for somebody. She wants those photos and she wants the one which is the $5 family shot. So the story is actually called $5 Family. And she, um, it's the making of her, actually. Do you want to read the end of it? I'll read a bit. So they've gone to Coles. She's got masses of stitches and stuff and she's you know, taken all the painkillers at once so she can do this. Um, and the baby's been asleep all this time. She can't get the baby to feed, so the baby's a very sleepy baby. And Des has come in, the boyfriend's come in, and what he's bought for the baby is a tiny miniature leather bikey jacket. Because <laughs> he's a complete... And she just... She's just realising how useless he is as she's taking him with the baby to the photo thing. As the flash goes off, she blinks involuntarily, worried she'll look stunned in the photo when she needs to be alert and smiling. Needs one image at least that looks right. That's great, says the photographer, especially because your little man there just opened his eyes. Did he, said Michelle, looking down at Jason. A tiny frown creased his curved red forehead and she, she cups her hand around his head. 
I pushed his head through my body, she thinks distantly, marvelling, feeling the fragile bones. Wait then, she says hastily, one without the jacket. She tugs the thing off the baby's arms and throws it behind a hay bale. They're set up like, a, you know, the hay and the wagon wheel and stuff, the country setting. Look up and we're there, says the photographer. All three looking at the camera. Michelle can feel it. This will be the one she'll choose. She'll put it in a frame up on the shelf next to the cards and miniature teddies. Make some copies for her aunties. The feeling sealed at least like evidence, a feeling that appears out of nowhere, thick and sweet and full of mysterious antibodies. The second flash makes the room swim and shimmer and Jason, poor little sleepy Jason, lying crookedly on her lap, jerks backwards, flailing his arms and legs and she feels a surprising determined strength in his sudden kick. The startle reflex, she thinks, the name dropping into her head from somewhere. Her baby gasps and his eyes widen in astonishment at the world he's woken up into and he opens his kitten mouth. A wail pierces the air around them, a cry sharp as glass. It sends her scrabbling ineffectually with her one free hand to pull her cardigan over her chest to hide her shirt. The spreading dark marks appearing there, the shocking flood of sodden warmth. Milk, unbelievable. It's as if the cry is pulling a wire through her all the way up from the stitches. Her whole body bends to him, held tautly suspended by that wire, pulled forward by it, mesmerised. What are you doing? hisses Des, jumping up. You're outside coals. But his voice is like someone you're hanging up on, going small and high-pitched and distant as you put the phone down. Doesn't matter anyway. She's got everything this baby needs now. And he's twisting his head, searching for her. He knows it too. She puts her hand to the side of his face and looks finally into his eyes. They're blue like hers. And his say, it's you. And hers say, yeah, it's me. And then her hand goes to her shirt, hurrying to get those buttons undone out of the way. Some women describe the letdown reflex as a tightening or tingling sensation, the brochure had said. It's not, though, not for her. It's like a shiver rippling out of control, the way tears will start when something makes you forget for a minute what you're supposed to be holding them back for. The end. So, <laughs> so as you can see, I like finishing the story at a point that leaves you to make up the rest yourself. Because that's my way of saying this is your story too. You have to fill in some of these blanks of what I'm not telling you, what I'm not showing you, to make a pretty good idea of what's going to happen next and how this might resolve. And that's why a lot of students have found that that exercise has been great for their study because they can write the next scene. So it'd be great to start a story with next the following Wednesday, dot, 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 and just use those characters because he'll be gone, he'll be inside. It's just her and the baby now and she's going to get the photos back maybe on the Wednesday. That's the way to kind of think about how to assemble stuff for a plot because now you have a character and you can write something else about them that's going to happen to watch that change in action. So... Any questions about that process? You don't want to ask me anything? Yes. <laughs> it is. You know, it's so strange that I would never have thought with either Dark Roots or Like a House on Fire, boy, these are going to be great stories for a gang of 17-year-olds to read. And, you know, Dark Roots came out in 2006 and this came out in 2012. And it's very interesting to kind of um, ask 
teenagers. What are the themes that you think are going on in the stories? Because they are adult. They're about aftermath. They're about mortality. They're about marriages breaking down. They're about people, as I said, getting on with life when stuff happens and it's not the drama of the event but it's the what happens later. And it's interesting talking to uh, young people at schools because they do have their own ideas about what those themes are. And I can tell that there's that kind of, I don't want to be talking down to you guys, but there's this sense of, you know, there's a point in your teenage years, and I remember it myself, when you've, you've got an inner life that's separate from your external life. Do you know that kind of that division that happens where you think, I've got my own stuff going on and no one knows about it, and the person, the persona that I am externally is different from my inner voice? That's a, that's, we learn that. That's a moment in life. And so one thing that kids have said of things like, um, like dark roots, they say, oh, those, those themes are like people doing the right things, not doing the wrong things for all the right reasons, which is a very nice sort of summation of themes. People break the law in that or they commit crime or stuff. In this one, kids have said to me, what I like about those stories is they've made me realize that you can't, you've got to wait. You don't get what you want automatically in life. You've got to learn to wait. And it's like, yeah, that is actually such a threshold understanding of what adulthood is going to be like at a coming out of childhood and sort of teenagerhood in that moment of, I don't know what you call it, existential kind of realisation that life is not going to sort itself out for you. You're the one who has to change. You're the one who has to adjust yourself to the reality of what's going to happen. So even though those things which are, you know, there are stories about breastfeeding, yes, and miscarriage and having a shitty part-time job where you get sacked and um, stressful Christmas lunches. There's also one at the end, which is like a novella that's a child's point of view about a young girl who's about 10 and her mum's got a new boyfriend who's moved in and all is not well. And you feel her peril, but she's not aware of her peril. So there's that kind of thing where you're using point of view to make people feel something and it's sort of giving, I'm trying to give kids the sense that you can do that too. You can choose first person. You can choose a character that you can make me care about. And you can, you don't have to have known what it's like to be in battle or have a baby or, you know, not be able to have a baby or be at risk of all these things. But emotionally, we know those things. We know what boredom feels like. We know what the moment of realization where you've made a misjudgment feels like. We understand what not getting what you want feels like. By the time we've kind of nine, we've experienced all that. We've all survived childhood, you know. So we've all got something to write about in that way that we can kind of conflate with what you want to write in your plot. So it's been great to read a lot of the students' stories and just see how sophisticated and complex their ideas actually are by not them choosing not to kind of uh, pretend to be someone that they're not, but actually working on their own life experiences has been super interesting for me. And the stories have been fantastic too, I've got to say. Because they're using a scaffolding idea. They're taking a structure. And you really, people often say, write what you know. I always think, write what you emotionally know. That's going to feel truer in a way that is really hard to fake. You know? So it's that being specific thing that's going to work. So it's not two people go out shopping. It's people go out shopping at three o'clock in the morning and one of them shoplifts something. Give it some detail to make it really specific for your reader and then you can actually apply whatever you want. You would do a different story to me there, right? I'll be thinking to myself, well, it's got to be a pharmacy. 
because what else is open at 3 a.m.? Maybe 24-hour supermarket, maybe. So why are they going out? What's this? Go- I'd be trying to apply kind of plot details like a puzzle. What would they shoplift? Well, I'll make it a pharmacy because the ones near hospitals are always open 24 hours. So I'll make it people who've come from the hospital maybe at 3 a.m. One of them shoplift something? Okay. Let's make the guy shoplift. Let's make it a pregnancy test that he shoplift. You know, I, I would just give myself details to force myself to put characters in a kind of predicament in that way. That's a very long answer, but it's like a scaffolding that gives people a chance to think, oh, I can make up some kind of plot if I can just invent a character that I can make someone care about and make them do something, the rest will sort of slowly be forged and reveal itself as I write. But it's that thing of don't be big and vague and generic. It's not, it's not Christmas. It's Christmas after the parents split up and the kid realises they're going to get two Christmases and there's no bike. It's that sort of specific thing that you want to do. So it's finding a small thing that you can actually make your reader feel is universal by being a much bigger shared emotion. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's yeah. That's a really interesting question. The question is, what's the line between kind of fact and fiction? And it's not just you thinking it. Everybody is thinking about it. in this world of you know fake news and fiction masquerading as fact, and fact suddenly being revealed as fiction. People are you know frozen with sort of paralysed fear about. And it's true, if you watch a program on TV and it's just based on a true story, it's got an added frisson of interest, hasn't it? Because this really happened, we think to ourselves, this is really someone's story. But it's always a story. It's always a story. And the same rules apply in, in non-fiction as would apply in fiction. It's someone who wants something, who can't get it, and often doesn't see what they want or why they can't get it, and tries to get it. And there's a tipping point that happens in, in the book. And the tipping point's like that pivot where we're watching to see what they're going to do with what happens to them. So are they going to, are they going to stay in Thailand travelling or are they going to, you know, whatever it might be, which is the memoir or the non-fiction book. Something happens to somebody that we care about and we want to see what they do with what happens to them. And they're still inventing a persona. Even in non-fiction, you are making yourself into a character because you're not telling every single thing that happened to you in your amazing experience. You are creating a story shape out of it. And the story shape is the same one. Once upon a time and every day until one day, and you can probably map your own experience on that grid and then you'll feel way more comfortable with thinking of what those two layers are because two things are happening, you know. The person who goes on the... on the um, uh, the school exchange program to Thailand and goes to the orphanage, that's, that's a storyline. But the change that happens is a whole different ballgame, right? Because that's interior. So coming home is part of that as well. And seeing what you see when you arrive home and stuff, that creates a story shape which is really similar to a work of fiction. So for me, they're all stories, but it's owning the story so that it has that no hypocrisy, there's no subterfuge involved. There's just you trying to tell the truth by using an art form, which is a shape. It's a shape to try and win someone else's attention and heart. So they think that could be me. I understand that feeling. And we have this big thing with likability. I don't know if you ever kind of read Goodreads. It's like, I didn't like the character. I couldn't really relate to the character. It's like, you know what? 
it's not about whether you like them or not. They're not written to gratify you or make you feel wittier or funnier or more attractive or more appealing. To make you feel something because they feel real. As long as you understand what's driving them, you will follow them, right? You don't have to like them, you know. I don't particularly like the Joker in Batman, you know, but I, I understand totally. It's, he's compelling. He's magnetic because I understand what he wants. He wants world domination. What does Batman want? Who knows? I don't know. Robin, probably. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The compelling character is the one that we can see what they want. So if you've got something that you need to write about, there's a burning need to write about it because it happened to you and it changed you, that feeling, want to grab somebody, this happened to me, it's partly about you saying, I went out on that journey and I'm back and I need to testify about the change in me. So you've got to find that change and work out where you're going to map it on that beautiful shape, you know. And then it's going to be story-like anyway, so that's what happens. You know, there's only two stories, they say. The first one is someone goes on a journey and the second one is a stranger comes to town. <laughs> So if both those things happen in your story, you're cooking, right? <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. Yep. Yes. 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 It's so true. And the way that we, not just the way we teach, but the way that we absorb media now where we don't read so much. We don't tend to go to a book so much anymore. To ask a question, not have an answer. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's like exercising a muscle that we're not used to. We get a stitch, you know. It's like a musical instrument more than anything else. It's like saying, so what's the right answer? It's like, it's not like that. It's not like maths. You have a question and you don't really have a sense of, I'm going to solve this for you. I'm going to answer it for you. You're kind of saying, is this how it feels to you too? Is this what it's like? Do you feel, there's a beautiful quote somewhere where someone said, just talking about Arnold's talk last night. It might be Michael Ondaatje, the, the guy from Canada. He's a great writer. And he said, writing a book is like walking down a road holding a big heavy mirror. Where it's like you are, you're on the road saying, does anyone else feel this or is it just me? Is it, does any, and someone goes, yeah, I recognise myself in that mirror. Oh, thank God. You know, it's a sense that we're not alone. And I feel less alone when I read and when I write. And that feels like my kind of strange virtual community. You know what I mean? People say, why aren't you doing more on Twitter? Why haven't you got a website? It's like, I don't know. The day I learned to read, I entered an amazing virtual community. And it's always been there. I just have to open a book. And it's, it sounds corny, but it's true. And I meet lots of readers and writers who say, oh, my God, we, sh we bond over something, which is the story of somebody else. And I feel like I know that writer or I know that. You're right, though. It's that thing of having the confidence to think I can make someone else feel something or experience something. It's not giving them a – in fact, the story is ruined if I try and give you a message or the right answer or a little lecture. And it often happens that you read in kids, they do falter in that confidence. They have a sentence that says something like, it wasn't really true, of course, but he didn't want his parents to worry, so that's why he lied or whatever. And you think, yeah, you just showed me that. You don't have to tell me that. You showed it to me in imagery and in the shift that happens in the story. I'm watching the character. I get what's going on internally for them because you've shown it to me. So don't say he felt nervous. Make that little movie. He wiped his hands on his jeans and looked out the window. We better go, he said. The movie starts in 10 minutes. Now we're on to it, right? 
and we've got a scene. So writing a little scene is the way rather than writing the generic kind of answer. Make the scene happen. Make your reader pay attention to that. They will work it out. They will get it for themselves. And I think teenagers, that's a hard thing to believe you have that kind of power, but they do. And then I've seen some extraordinary stories by teenagers that have just been like, I wish I could do that as well as that kid just did that. You know, in all sorts of great ways that is audacious. That's its verve. It's a confidence that comes with being able to plunge in and write with verve. And let me tell you, the examiners who read hundreds of these can't wait to read the one which opens and plunges you in because they're confident. And they say, right, are you ready? We're going on. Let's go. And they plunge you into a scene rather than giving you all this kind of dutiful, dull, benign, um, timid, hesitant, carefully modulated, correct prose, but that's dead on the page because they don't have that fire to make it come alive. That's the writer that they're all waiting to see, is the one who plunges you straight in rather than saying, it was a hot Friday afternoon, I was home early from school because it had been supposed to, I don't care. You've got to get right to the action and the dialogue to show us why it matters and show us what's at stake really early. And even genre writers say that. I was talking the other night to Michael Robotham after um, Bendigo Writers Festival, who's best-selling crime author, on number one at the moment, actually. On the, so he's taking me out to dinner. <laughs> In fact, his publisher was. And he said, um, I said, because one thing he does is create a great, here's a character who's an investigator. And I said, so what's the, what's the mantra? Even in genre fiction that's selling hundreds of thousands, and he's, you know, we always say big in Germany, you know, with crime fiction, if that's what happens, you have this, it can be translated and it's still fantastic, you know. And he said, I only have one real rule, and that's make them care and then make them wait. Which is so interesting, isn't it? Because it's always character-based, but he's now talking about creating tension by thinking when he's going to show you something. It's like watching a beautiful close-up magic trick. And you know that it's a, you know, it's a trick, right? You're watching close-up card trick. You're not thinking, oh, my God, the card really has disappeared. You know it's about misdirection on some level. You know that it's an artful misdirection. And when that person says, so, is that your card? And you say, yes, it is. That sense of dopamine, that kind of <gasps> delight in being for a minute believing that the impossible is possible, that's the thing that happens in a story too because the first thing you say is do it again. You don't say, that's a trick. You tricked me. I know that this. You don't feel annoyed. You actually feel delighted. And this is what happens in storytelling all the time, that we have this understanding. Our brain is hardwired, I think, to want to see what's in it for us. What's in that story that I can take from this? And this has happened to me all over the world. And I'm sure if we spoke to Annie Stewart, she would say the same thing. You go to another country, you're talking to a whole bunch of little five-year-old kids, you know, in my case, I don't know, in Vanuatu a few years ago. Can you tell the kids a story? Sure. You know, religious, has to be from the Bible because all the schools there are run by Pentecostalist American church. Okay, so I'm thinking right the Bible. Um, okay. So there was once a grasshopper and an ant, I'm saying, right? And all summer long, the ant worked hard, but the grasshopper just sat around and played his fiddle. And these little five-year-olds are like, and I'm thinking to myself, you hardly speak English. You've never heard this fable before. But not one of you are thinking, oh, a story about insects, right? You're thinking, grasshopper and that, which one am I? Which one am I? What's this going to be about that I can take from this? How am I going to get something from this? It's a reciprocity thing. It's a parabolic projection that we think, how, why is this person telling me this story? And what can I take from it? 
So that's what you're doing when you start confidently, is saying, trust me, you ready? I'm going to show you something great. You ready? See that? Nothing up the sleeve. <laughs> that's what you're doing when you open the story. So it's a beautiful kind of, not even a contract. We call it the writerly contract, but it's not. It's more like a seduction where you are going to drop into the story and you're going to dream the dream that I made up for you. And I'm going to control your experience of time and space for a minute. You're going to look up and realise you've missed your stop on the train because you're in that world. I want that. Because I have, I have created this. It's like how J.K. Rowling must feel with Hogwarts. You know, she made a world that feels realer and better and more fun than the real world. And we want to spend time in that world. We want to dwell in that world. So we go into it and our experience of time and space has actually changed. I mean, that's a fairly potent thing to try to do. And it's got to be done with sensory language and making them feel like they're in the dream, which is not having clunky sentences like he felt nervous. Don't cut that one out because that jars me out of my immersion in the dream, right? I want to be in the dream. And when I get woken up out of a dream, I feel grumpy. I don't want my reader to feel grumpy. I want them to, to be in that world, that vivid, continuous dream. Yep. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question too because that's it. we want to get to it really fast, right? And that we don't develop the situation or the character or the predicament enough to see what's at stake. That's what has to happen first is that we see why it matters. So we see the couple in the pharmacy. Let's make it the pharmacist's point of view, watching on the closed circuit TV and she sees the boy take the thing, doesn't see what it is. And then she calls the police and he is forced to take it out and it's a pregnancy test. Now we have a predicament, right? Because what I've done is I've thought about the right person to tell the story. Well, let's make another one up. Let's make um, uh, a boy likes a girl uh, and she's a swimming star at the school and he is not a great swimmer. In fact, he's really scared of water. And he asks her out and she says yes. Um, it doesn't make sense for them to go to the pizza hut, right? They've got to go somewhere where there's water. Can you see why? Because we have to get it to some point where we're going to see a tipping point of what is stronger for him, uh, his desire or his fear, really. And suddenly it's not trivial and small anymore, is it? It's big. Because the tipping point of fear and desire is Shakespeare and all the Russians and <laughs> everybody. That's it. That's what we're reading to see. What are they going to do now? What's going to win here? So somehow you have to kind of heat up. That's what I would say is the thing to try and apply that makes a plot work is like apply heat, which is pressure. Pressure and time. It's like a pot. All your ingredients go in the pot. And that's like the crucible or the pot. And But they're not. nothing's happening until you put the heat on. And then they start to affect each other and transform. So if you do that too early, it's too quick for your reader to kind of see what the stakes are. But if you don't do it and it's too late, they lose interest before, before, the, um, before the transformation can start, the change can happen. So you've got to show what the stakes are, make them care, and then make them wait. And however long your story is, we've got to be able to predict ahead and think, oh my God, what's going to happen when he opens the door and, and the long-lost sister's there? We're looking forward to that in the story because you've set us up nice and early. So it, like foreshadowing is what can bring that together, where we see why it matters that he's scared of water because they're going to go to the dam 
right? And they're going to stay there all afternoon and then there's no one else there and then this beautiful girl's going to say, hey, do you want to go skinny dipping? <laughs> and now we have an incredibly acute tipping point where we're going to see what's going to win between his fear and his desire because he's under pressure to do something. So it's not hard to sort of retro-engineer that. Once you've got your kind of story in place, you know where it starts and knows where it finishes, something has to happen to someone that brings some internal conflict to the surface and then we see the change that takes place as a result of what happens in the story. It's easy to kind of pick apart someone else's. It's very hard to generate it yourself. But you do, you just need to practice so that you can sort of see, make a few crappy ones where there is no right answer and you'll wreck a few. But like Ray Bradbury says, the great writer Ray Bradbury said, everyone should write a short story a week for a year because it's impossible to write 52 bad ones in a row. <laughs> and it is a bit like that, you know. We have this enormous expectation that we're going to write one, it's going to be perfect, going to write it in one draft, right before it's due, it's not going to happen. You wouldn't do that if it was sport, would you? If I said, well, you pick for the team, but don't bother training, just turn up on the grand final day and you'll be fine. You want to be in the orchestra? Don't bother practicing, just turn up with a violin on the day, you'll be great. It's crazy that we don't sort of see this process. I understand everyone's not interested in it like I'm interested in it. I can understand how it's not everyone's cup of tea. But the thought that it's not a process that we have to have a few runs up at to work out what our voice is and what we're on about and what our preoccupations are, and every story you write is going to show you what your thoughts and preoccupations are. Every honest sentence you write is going to show you. The story is going to show you what it's about if you just put it into place and keep on going. That's probably a spot we should be finishing because I just noticed it's 12 o'clock. What time are we meant to be finishing, Maya? Any, well, one more question. Is there, is there one question I haven't answered that someone's been desperate to ask me? Yeah, Tobes. How many short story writers you've written over the past? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. And that's why I love them because it's baffling how they do it and I can't work out how they've done it. You know, that's what, that's what makes it artful, isn't it? So people who write very long short stories who do not seem to obey the rules of compression or do something different in terms of structure or who just start at the end and subvert my expectations in that playful way, I just think, bring it on. The form is so capacious that it just, everyone can show off their own way of writing in that form. So we can write lyrical prose, we can write terse prose, we can write stories that are 500 words long. There's a whole thing of microfiction and flash fiction, which is fantastic. We can write short stories that are 12,000 words long and say, well, I call it a short story. Alice Munro never wrote a novel in her life. She said, these are my short stories. This is what the form is that I'm using. I was like, I would have called them novellas, but hey, I can't work out how you've done that, how you've taken all these bits and pieces of people's diaries and said that assemblage creates a narrative and you think, it does and I don't know how you've done it but all you can do is read it again and admire it and get that sort of joy of wanting to try something yourself, you know. So everyone breaks the rules and that's like Picasso says, learn the rules like a pro and break them like an artist, you know. See what you can use yourself and say, I'm going to try that. I'm going to start at the end. I'm going to make it a second person point of view. I'm going to write it from, I'm going to make it 500 words only, that's my rule. All you're doing is getting yourself to the desk, right, and getting something on the page, which is so much better than having nothing because the blank page is the stasis is death thing is so true. That's the block. 
making yourself do it for the joy of it or for the fun of it or the game of it, that's you tricking yourself, your own executive function, <laughs> into stopping worrying about the right answer. And other people who inspire you, they're the ones that I love to pick up and read. Not to tell myself how to do it, Toby, tell myself why I'm doing it, to try and find that fun again and that joy, to think I want to add my voice to this chorus. Not because I'm the only person in the world who understands how I feel, the opposite in fact, because we're all alone together, you know, and it makes me feel less alone to get the story finished and know it's going to go in the world, you know. Yep, time to stop. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to the Words in Winter podcast. Words in Winter is a literary festival that runs every year in the cold winter months of August in Dalesford, Victoria, Australia. If you'd like to find out more about the festival, please go to wordsinwinter.com. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them at wordsinwinter.com forward slash podcasts.